All right, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I am super excited for this series. And uh, for the last couple of months now, I've just been working hard to organize all my notes because there is a whole lot of stuff that we're going to study together. And uh, it's going to be jam-packed. So I, I hope you're ready for uh, an intense series where we really dig deeper into our faith. And so I made some worksheets for you guys. Just take as much notes as possible, but also be attentive. And uh, don't worry if you don't catch everything all at once. We'll uh, take time to repeat and explain things and then take some questions at the end as well. And so I'll just start by mentioning a few words from Bishop Callista Ware. He says, we see that it's not the task of Christianity to provide easy answers to every question, but to make us progressively aware of a mystery. God is not so much the object of our knowledge as the cause of our wonder. All right, so I'm mentioning this from the very start because we are going to study so much theology and history and tough topics that always point to the wonders of God. And so we're not going to wrap our mind around everything that we discuss in theology, whether it's in this course or our own independent studies elsewhere. And so a part of theology is to understand, but when theology leaves us at the wonder of God's magnificence and, and majesty and splendor, that also serves as a part of the purpose because we really do feel smaller in relation to God's greatness. And so if you can't wrap your mind around everything, of course, we want to try to understand it. But if something just leaves you at wonder, well, take that as a part of the purpose of our theological studies. All right. So. Thomas Kempis also says, What good does it do to speak learnedly about the Trinity if, lacking humility, you displease the Trinity? Indeed, it's not learning that makes a man holy and just, but a virtuous life makes him pleasing to God. I'd rather feel contrition than to know how to define it. For what would it profit us to know the whole Bible by heart and the principles of all the philosophers if we live without grace and the love of God. Vanity of vanities, and all is vanity except to love God and serve Him alone. Alright, so if that's the case, why study theology from the start? You know, he says it makes no sense for us to speak learnedly about the Trinity if you lack humility and displease the Trinity. And it makes no sense to study all of the virtues and theology and the scriptures if at the end we're not practicing that which we study. And so we might think that studying theology is irrelevant. All that really matters is just living a good life. And so that's true, but studying theology is what ought to lead, lead to our spiritual 
life and, and a, a deeper Christian relationship um, with, with our God. And so we got to wonder, why is it that we're even taking this journey together? Why is it that we're studying theology? And it's for us to, to grow. It's for us to, to not just learn in an intellectual sense, but for us to experience God. And so it's not really a matter of an intellectual journey, but a spiritual journey. It's not, you know, what you grasp up here in your mind. It's, it's the journey of the heart, not an intellectual journey. Also, we find that in Jeremiah 9.24, the scripture says, Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising love and kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. So, he basically says, if you're going to boast, if you're going to brag about anything, brag or boast about this, that you know me, that you understand me, that you know I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. And so he says, for in these I delight. God delights in our understanding of Him. And so he delights when we come to know Him, again, not intellectually, but when we come to know Him within the depths of our heart. This also is at the very heart of our purpose. It's, a very, it's at the very heart of the, the reason why we were created. St. Athanasius says from his book on the Incarnation, For what use is existence to the creature if it cannot know its maker? What could men, how could men be reasonable beings if they had no knowledge of the word and reason of the Father through whom they had received their being? They would be no better than the beasts had they no knowledge except of earthly things. And why should God have created them at all if He had not intended them to know Him? Okay, so he says, if we do not know God, then we're really no different than the beasts. You know, that the distinction in our creation is that we are created to know God. He continues to say, but in fact, the good God has given them a share in His own image that is in our Lord Jesus Christ and has made even themselves after the same image and likeness. Why? So he asks, we're created in His image and likeness. And so, why is that so? Simply in order that through this gift of godliness in themselves, they may be able to perceive the image absolute. So we may be able to perceive God's image, to, to understand Him, to experience Him. He says, that image absolute is the Word Himself and through Him to apprehend the Father. So we come to know the Father by our understanding of who Christ is, who is the image of the Father. And He says, which knowledge of their Maker is for men the only real, happy, and blessed life. Wow. So that's a bold statement. It says, Knowledge of their maker is for men the only real happy and blessed life. So this is our purpose. This is the reason we're created. And furthermore, it's really the essence of what makes us happy 
and what gives us a blessed life. Okay, so we're created to know God. St. Maximus also says, the person who loves God values knowledge of God more than anything created by men and pursues such knowledge ardently and ceaselessly. So, the one who loves God makes theology, which is essentially what, what knowledge of God is, studying everything about Him, His priority. And he says that he pursues such knowledge ardently and ceaselessly. Alright, so now that I mean, I hope, I hope I've convinced you that studying theology is as, as important as anything else and is even the priority of everything that we ought to do. Now, the next question has to be, how do we attain knowledge of God? Okay, and so we got to ask ourselves, how do we go about this journey? Even though we know it's not just an intellectual path, it's not something that we commit our minds to in an intellectual sense, and that it's a matter of the heart and experiencing God. But what does that really mean? All right, so St. Clement of Alexandria, he quotes Psalm 118, he says, God is the Lord and has revealed himself to us. And he continues to say, God reveals his truth to people throughout all generations by divine revelation. Alright, so what does that really mean? That our knowledge of God comes to us by his revelation to us, not necessarily as, as if we, we go to seek it and grasp it ourselves. You know, when something is revealed to someone, all that is required is just open eyes to see that which is revealed. Okay, whenever you think of studying a, a, a certain subject, like in, in academics, you're trying to study math, you put your mind above the text. And so you study in that sense, you try to wrap your head around it. And so you grasp it intellectually by your own efforts and by your own intelligence. In theology, it is the exact opposite. And so that's why we say that theology is a humble path. It's the path of belittling ourselves to the extent of admitting, God, we know nothing and only you are capable of revealing yourself to us. We say that unless you, Lord, reveal yourself to us, we can know nothing. And so once we admit that knowledge of God comes by revelation, we, we avoid a sort of prideful path and the thought that we can just put our minds to something and the harder we try, it will make more sense to us. Remember, even in the words of Christ where he says that no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And so it is by, by the will of God and by His revelation that we come to know Him. Alright, so with that being said, um, we now know that this is really at the heart of our life, that we ought to know God, and that 
knowledge of him comes by a humble approach of just opening our eyes and opening our hands to receive whatever gifts of knowledge that he will give us. Now for our topic today, as you know, we're going to study creation and soteriology. And I linked the two into one topic throughout this series because the truth is they are intimately connected. Okay, so St. Ananias says, salvation is not the correction, but the fulfillment of creation. Right, so salvation is not the correction, but the fulfillment of creation. Because a lot of times we look at what Christ did to come and save us by His crucifixion and resurrection as a matter of correcting something that was broken or as if it's a separate event from everything else that God did. But in reality, we, we ought to look at creation and everything else that God does following that as one continuous process of God's work in mankind. All right, so the two are intimately, intimately connected and we're going to uh, elaborate on why so as we go through today's topic. All right, so we'll start with creation. And the very first thing that we ought to say about creation is that when God creates, He creates ex nihilo. He creates ex nihilo. What that means is just a fancy term to say, out of nothing. Okay, nihil means nothing or nothingness. And so He is the Creator who brings all matter, all creation into existence from nothing. He's not just an architect or a sculptor who finds the material and then shapes it or molds it into his desired object. For God, he creates the material and molds it as well. Okay? And so St. John Chrysostom says he brings from non-existence into being. And again, this is what all the fathers will tell us. Now, what does that mean for us? Because everything that we see God doing has to reveal something about Him. And so we got to ask, what can we learn from God doing this about who He is? And so, for God to create ex nihilo, it tells us that He is... The Pantocrator, he is the ultimate source of all that exists. Okay, so he is the cause, he is the source. And it tells us that there was a time when creation did not exist. Right? And so if we know God to be the, the, the perfect Trinity who is complete in and of himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then... We, we ascribe that to Him throughout all eternity from before the beginning into all generations following. Alright, and so if there was a time when creation did not exist, we also have to conclude that God did not lack anything 
prior to bringing creation into existence because he is complete and perfect for all eternity okay and so he does not bring creation into existence in order to fulfill some need a lot of people come and say well god just loved us so much and he he needed to pour that love out into his creation and that's why he created so that he can share that love that he needed to radiate out into the world and that that's that might sound nice and uh, lovely but in reality that's the huge heresy because that implies that god has a need Okay, and God doesn't create out of need. He creates purely out of His love and out of His goodness. He was just fine before. He didn't need the angels to praise Him. He didn't need uh, humanity to look up to Him and meditate on His wonders. This He does purely out of His love and His goodness. So Isaac the Syrian says, Among all His actions, there is none which is not entirely a matter of mercy, love, and compassion. This constitutes the beginning and the end of his dealings with us. In love did God bring the world into existence, and love is God going to bring it to that wondrous transformed state, and in love will the world be swallowed up in that great mystery of the one who had performed all these things. Alright, and so we come to know God's love, we come to know God's goodness, and so much more of the mysteries of who He is by what He does. And this is essentially what transforms us because the purpose is for us to be transformed once we study theology. The purpose is for us to, to change our way of life and to reflect His love, His goodness, and to walk in the very same path that He has set us on so that by studying, we have fuel to do that. And once we look at something that God does, it reveals to us a little glimpse of who He is. Right? And so from the very start, we get a huge look into who God is just by looking at the very principle by which He creates. And so we know that He always creates in a certain pattern, and we see this throughout the first couple of chapters of Genesis, that he always speaks into existence. He says, like, let there be heavens, and let there be waters, let there be this, let there be that, right? Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all their hosts by the breath or spirit of his mouth. And so, that tells us that God doesn't just create haphazardly or in some sort of random fashion. You know, God could have just like snapped his fingers, right? God could have winked or like he could have pointed at something and then creation would have come into existence. But he does so by speaking every time. All right? And so what that tells us is 
there's something revealed to us about who He is when He creates in that manner. We say that He speaks into existence because it is by His Word, which is the Logos, Christ, and in His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that all creation comes into existence. And so it is by the Holy Trinity that creation comes into existence. It's not just by one single person doing his own thing. But we get a glimpse into the love and the fellowship and the unity that exists in God from this alone. And we're going to see that throughout all that God does in the economy of divine salvation, that He always works as the Holy Trinity and the three persons in every divine act are expressed. Whether directly or indirectly, we see this in creation, that the Father creates by the Logos, His Son, in the Spirit. Right? In, in, in every other divine economy of salvation, like the Incarnation, for example, we might see that, oh, it's just the second person of the Trinity, Christ is born. And, you know, the Father or the Spirit don't really have much to do with that. But in reality, we see the angel speaking to Mary, and she hears the words that the Father chose you, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and the Son will condescend to take flesh from you. And so this kind of points to the trend for everything that God does, that He always works in that perfect unity. And again, that has a practical implication for us, because we're going to see as we continue to study anthropology that we're created to reflect that. So that also points to a, a reason for us to live with that sort of unity. You know, it, it equips us to form our mind in the very same way that God works. All right? And again, we can go on and on and on with examples where, where God works in His Trinity, but I think that will suffice. All right, so we see from the very first day that The heavens were created. And it's just worth mentioning here that uh, th this is where the fathers tell us um, all the angelic hosts were created as well. Now, I'm not going to have time to dwell on every single day of creation, uh, although I, I would love to. Um, but I'll just pause here on the first day to explain something quickly. And then we'll kind of skip through the, the rest of the other days until the creation of man. Right? And so, the Fathers tell us that the heavenly hosts were created on this first day. It's St. Basil, St. Ambrose, and uh, many of the other Fathers tell us that. And so, when we think about the heavenly hosts, our Orthodox understanding is that we have nine ranks. Okay? Seven of the angelic rings, the angels, the archangels, the principalities, the authorities, the thrones, the dominions, and the powers. And the other two are the cherubim and the seraphim. 
All right, and so we don't know a whole lot about the heavenly hosts, but what we do know is they are incorporeal creatures. That means they are without bodies, and that they are they are noetic. They are not um, bound by the laws of nature, and they they serve the purpose of revealing God's glory by their praise and worship, and also serve as, as ministering spirits to us, right? And so they, they also have a role in salvation. And you'll see that, that the angels are always working throughout the whole history of God's plan, for saving us, and they're always participating in that sense. Now, among the angels, we know that there was one bad guy. <laughs> and so, Lucifer was uh, the, the highest rank of the angels uh, alongside Archangel Michael. And after he had rebelled, um, he took a third of the heavenly hosts with him and were cast out. Of the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't ask me what caused Lucifer to fall. <laughs> we know that for Adam and Eve, their fall was because someone deceived them, which was Lucifer. But then, if you ask, well, who deceived Lucifer? Well, there there isn't like a predecessor there, um, and and certainly we know that all the angelic hosts were created. To be good, right? Everything that God creates, He says, He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. And so, when He created Lucifer, He didn't say, He saw that it was a rebellious angel. <laughs> no, He saw that it was good too. And so, Lucifer was created to be good, but out of His free will, He thought of elevating Himself, and that rebellion is what caused the consequences that he has to live with now. Right? And so this is what St. Paul mentions as the mystery of sin. Okay? We don't really know the science of how it, it all started. Right? Alright, so when, when God created everything that we see, we, we also have to think about the, the very purpose that they serve. All right? And so, when you look at something like the planets and the stars and all of that, I wonder, like, what's, what's the purpose of all of that stuff? Right? But, if you look at the the finale or like the pinnacle of God's creation, you can look back and everything else that he's created will make a little bit more sense to you. Okay? And so when he comes to the very end of his creation and he says, "Let us make man." He actually does it in a different way than he did everything else 
prior to the creation of man. It's almost like he pauses. Because before he just speaks into existence, he says, let there be this, let there be that, let there be this, let there be that. He didn't say, let there be man. It's almost like he says, time out, let's pause, let's meditate, let's actually put a little bit more thought into this. Obviously, not in a literal sense, because God doesn't need to actually stop and think. But he's revealing to us that there's something a little extra special coming. Okay? And so by that pause, you see that this seems to be the pinnacle of creation. Okay? And so if this is the case, you'll see that everything else prior to that was in a sense leading up to the creation of man. It's almost like you think of uh, parents that find out they're, they're going to have a baby. The first thing they do is they go and they prepare the room for the baby. And they buy the crib and the little table or they buy all of these uh, little cute posters and stuff to hang up on the wall. And they decorate the walls and they make the walls a certain color. All of that because this room is going to be like the baby's world. Okay, and so they're putting in all this work one day after another. And they're, in a sense, like creating a little world for this baby. But it's all about who. It's not like they're creating this room for the sake of having something pleasant to look at. No, it's all about who? The baby, right? And so in creating men you see that everything else was made for him. Just like everything else in this room was put there for the sake of the baby. Alright? And so, you might not fully understand why all the planets and the stars and this and that are out there for the sake of man. But they do reveal the wonders of God for man. And, it's, and so you'll see... So many magnificent things in creation may not seem to make a whole lot of sense in directly relating to man, but the truth is they are a cause of man's wonder. And everything you'll see uh, if you actually put your mind to it that it does serve a purpose in, um, in and ministering to man or, or helping man or edifying man in one way or another. All right? So St. John Chrysostom says, Why then, when the heaven was created, was it not said, let us make, but rather, let there be heaven, let there be light, and so on, concerning each part of creation. But here only is there added, let us make, by which is expressed counsel, deliberation, and communion, communication with someone equal in honor. Who is it that is to be created that he is granted such honor? It is man, a great and wondrous living being, and for God more precious than all the creation. So he says here that when God created man, he expressed counsel, deliberation, and communication for someone who is granted such honor. Right? He almost pauses and says, hey, 
let's put some extra thought into this because what's coming is super special. All right? And so let's dig in a little bit further into anthropology, who we are and, and you know, what really makes us who we are. All right? So St. Gregory the Theologian says, He placed him on earth. God placed man on earth. A living creature, trained here and then moved elsewhere, and to complete the mystery deified by its inclination to God. And so, the very first thing that we can say is that when man is formed, he is wired a certain way. right? And so, he has the inclination to who? To God. And so, we don't say that man is like an earthly creature and he has the tendency to seek earthly pleasures and sins and so on. But in reality, the very original way that he is created and wired is with the inclination towards God, right? Now I want you to think of man created in the very same way that like a manufacturer would manufacture a car, okay? A car is manufactured a certain way. It's wired a certain way. It has certain components and parts and so on, right? And the way it is manufactured points to the purpose it ought to serve, right? And so if you see a sports car, a racing car, something that is designed to, to speed down the racing tracks at 150 miles per hour or whatever speeds they go, you'll see that this is the purpose that this car is supposed to serve. It is manufactured to go at that speed. And and you determine that just by looking at the way it's made and the way it looks, right? If you look at something like a, pure, a Prius and how a Prius is made, you'll conclude that this is designed to have... Long economic drives, okay? <laughs> and it's designed to be kind on your wallet, all right? And so the way it's designed points to the way it ought to function. And you'll get a sense of that when you look at the design of humanity, all right? Now, when, when God created men... He creates him in his image and in his likeness. Okay, we're going to get into what that really means in, in a minute. But keep that in mind because that image and likeness is the reflection of who God is. Right? And just as God has all sorts of qualities and traits, we ought to have that as well. Right? And so as soon as God molds man, I'm not going to get into what that really means, whether it's like an evolutionary process or not, because that's a whole other topic, but he molds him, and then he gives him life, and as Adam is walking through the garden and 
and, and living his life, God notices something. And he says that Adam seems lonely. Right? You see, in Genesis 2.18, that God says, it's not good for man to be alone. Right? And so, when, when he realizes that, it's not like God says, oh, shoot, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> it's not like he thought, well, you know, I, I guess I got to uh, do something about it because I didn't expect him to be lonely. Right? He knew that this would happen. And so, what it does is actually reveal to us a deeper mystery about the process of creation. Yeah. And so, when he does that, he brings the animals to Adam in a, a sort of attempt to satisfy his loneliness and to give him some companionship. Now, of course, this doesn't work, but it's not because God is just like, you know, taking a stab in the dark and then... <laughs> realizes it didn't work. Of course, that's not the case. But it does reveal to us something a little deeper. Okay? And what we see by Adam naming all the animals is that he, he first of all, exercises his authority as the crown of creation. Now, you might be thinking, like, okay, how is that the case? How do you get that just by seeing Adam naming the animals? Okay, so let me explain this to you. What's the very first thing that a master in uh, the Jewish tradition in the Old Testament would do whenever he purchases a slave? The first thing he does is he names him. He gives him a name. Why? Because that slave is the master's possession. He says, I am your owner. And so, I am your authority. I give you your name. Okay? I name you because I possess you and I am your master. And so, the act of naming is an exercise of authority. Now, for Adam to name all the animals, and for him to name all creation, you know, imagine the lion comes and, you know, Adam says, you're a lion. And then he looks over and says, you're a giraffe. <laughs> he looks over and says, you're a lizard, right? He's doing that throughout all creation. What that means is, Adam is expressing his authority over all creation, which is granted to him by God. And again, he's created in the image and likeness of God. So he's created to reflect all that God is. In a sense, Adam is like created to be a lowercase g God over all the earth. Alright? But going back to our, our point, that the animals don't satisfy his loneliness, and God knows that. But he simply allows this process to reveal to us something about Adam's nature. And then, after he realizes that he's still lonely, Eve's come, Eve comes into the picture. Right? And so, 
I want you to think of what type of human being Adam could have been before Eve and what type of human being he could have been after Eve. Before Eve, he was lonely. And so it would be impossible for a lonely creature to reflect the image and likeness of God because there is no loneliness in God. There's no sadness. God is joy and comfort and perfection. Okay? And so he can't exercise his humanity in that state. So in a sense, he's not really completed. He's not a full human being until his counterpart Eve, which again comes into the picture as an equal. You know, the father says she doesn't come like as apart from his foot or apart from his head in order to suggest that she is lower or higher than him, but she comes from his side as an equal, right in the middle. Right? And so this counterpart allows Adam to exercise that fellowship that would have been impossible for him to exercise had he been alone. And that's the same fellowship that God exists in by nature. Okay, so we get a sense of what Adam is created to be by Eve coming into the picture. We get a sense of what humanity is supposed to live like. And so, in a sense, Adam was not a real human being yet. It's almost like you just you go to Ikea and buy a table or a chair. And it comes in a box. Okay? Whenever you bring this box into your house, you don't say, Okay, here, I have a chair. You don't just put the box down and expect to sit on the box and say that it's a real chair. Now, all you have are pieces of the chair. It's not really a chair until it is fully composed and, and put in, in order. The same for Adam, you know. He's, in a sense, becoming. And you'll see that throughout all of creation and salvation, and even into eternity, man is in a state of becoming and in a state of constant eternal growth. Alright? So, Adam and Eve are given a commandment to be fruitful and multiply. Alright? So, we see that they're given this command to procreate. And again, this reflects the the nature of God, because He is the Creator. But what this tells us, that the commandment to be fruitful and multiply, must have been a pure command. I mean, this isn't something that has any trace of sinfulness in it. Otherwise, it would not have come from God. right? And so, He tells them to be fruitful and multiply while in paradise. And so, we don't see that there is anything sinful in sexual intercourse, so long as it is practiced in its proper place. right? And so, for Adam and Eve, in that purity of their marriage, they are commanded to procreate. Right? St. Augustine says, I do not see what could have prohibited them from honorable marital union 
and the bed undefiled even in paradise. God could have granted them this if they had lived in a faithful and just manner in obedient and holy service to Him, so that without the tumultuous ardor of passion and without any labor and pain of childbirth, offspring would be born from their seed. Alright? So I'm not going to dwell any more on that, but you get an idea that they they were called to exist in that pure state in paradise. Alright, so we mentioned earlier that when God said, let us make man, He says, let us make man according to our image and likeness. So what does image and likeness really mean? We'll take a moment to just explain that and then we'll take a quick little break before we move on. The word image is different than the word likeness. He's not just repeating two words that mean the same thing. So what does image really mean? Image means the divine identity of God, which is inscribed in man. All right. So that's basically like the simplest way I can put it. Image is like that divine DNA that is translated to man. And so this is God's free gift. It comes not by any merit on man's part. It's not something that man earns. It's not something that he asks for or works for. And it's also something that's never lost. Okay, It is a free gift by God to man. It is a grace. And so we can identify it as the divine identity of God inscribed in man by God's free gift without any merit on man's part, which is never lost. So examples of that are, are freedom, dominion, rationality, immortality, creativity, self-awareness. All these things are qualities of who God is by nature. Right? So we are created with that very same grace. We're created with the, the very same freedom God has. And like I told you, the authority that God has as, as the Pantocrator, the governor, the, the one who is above all things. You know, Adam was called to exercise that same authority. And so everything that you see in God is translated as a grace to man. All right, so again, this is like the way a car is wired. It is just manufactured a certain way, and that's pretty much how it is. Now, likeness is a matter of the the way the car functions. Okay, the way the car drives. It might be built a certain way, but might not drive the way it's intended to. So, likeness is like the life of virtues. Likeness is the resemblance of God. It is the practice. It is the, the actions that we, we have. And so we could define it as 
attaining virtues to imitate and resemble Christ. And so this depends on our cooperation with God. The first one we said is just a free gift. You know, you don't do anything to earn that. But the likeness, on the other hand, is something that comes about by man's cooperation with God. And that's what we call synergia, the Greek synergia or synergy. So that depends on our own cooperation with God. We say that, um, from the words of St. Gregory the Theologian, the soul received the breath of God, and while being heavenly, it endures being mixed with what is of the dust. It is a light enclosed in a cave, but still it is divine and inextinguishable. You see how mysterious man is? He's just apart from the earth. He's made from the dust of the earth. But he's endowed with a divine light. The word spoke and having taken a part of the newly created earth with his immortal hands formed my image and imparted to it his life because he sent into it the spirit which is the ray of the invisible divinity. So we have that, that trace of God's divinity, that invisible light that penetrated into our being, that makes us reflect who God is. Okay, so that's like God's fingerprint or God's DNA. That's His image, and that's how we are wired. And so that has profound implications on the way we ought to live our life and the purpose of our life and what we're created for. Alright, so we get into the finer details of what man is. And we say that man is body, soul, and spirit. He's like a tripartite sort of organism. A lot of uh, scholars might look at man as uh, a a bipartite sort of organism in which they combine the soul and the spirit into one and say that the the spirit is just the higher component of the soul. But for our purposes, we want to keep those three uh, distinct so that we can get a better understanding of them. So the body, the soul, and the spirit make up the whole of man. And I'm going to share with you um, what, what all of this really means from uh, Jean-Claude Lachette, which has a wonderful book on the theology of the body. And so that'll, that'll be our primary source for uh, this little part right here. And so the first part that we can talk about is the body, which is probably the easiest for us to understand. We say... Uh, in in the liturgy that God created man in incorruption. Again, so that applies to the whole human being. And so the body itself was created to be incorruptible. Even though it's created from the earth, it was created to feed on the tree of life and to live immortally. And so the body was not created to experience pain or suffering or sorrow or shame. You know, Adam and Eve lived naked. They didn't even know, right? It was like an eternal state of bliss. So all the back pain that you're struggling with, all the tears and the anxieties that you've experienced are all a product of the fall, all right? And you might even wonder, like... Um, what happened to our bodies physiologically, on a physical sense. Because there was a change, you know, 
uh, if we never experienced pain, then like where did the nociceptors or the pain receptors come from, right? And uh, why do we have tear ducts if <laughs> if we, we never shed tears or like sweat glands? Because he says, out of the sweat of your brow, you're going to toil and labor. And that was a part of the consequences of our fall. But you see, like, there's a physiological change we were created in a blissful physical state. And so whether those things always existed in man and were just dormant or physiologically there was an actual change, the fathers don't say a whole lot about it. I don't really know, but what we can conclude safely within the parameters of our orthodox theology is that the physical body changed with the fall. Okay, It, it became corrupted and it has uh, a lot of different um, changes that that happened to it. Now, for the soul and the spirit, it gets a little bit more tricky, but I'll try to keep this as simple as possible as well. So, the soul in, in Greek is psychi, or psyche, and in Latin, anima. And, and by the Latin, you'll get a better idea of what it really means, because it sounds like the word animal, right? And so, that can comprise like two little parts uh, depending on the creature. So every living creature is soul. Okay, every like whenever God created Adam, He says that He was a, a living soul. Okay, and so what this really means is that something that has life, like the word soul can almost be synonymous to the word life. Okay? Like a living being has a soul. And so that applies to all the animals, the vegetables, and the human beings, right? Every living creature that biologically speaking grows and 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 exists in some sort of like biological living qualities then it is identified as a soul right so in the most elementary level is like the vegetative or vital power common to all living things whether human animal or vegetables okay so you'll see like some plants um, react like if you um, like break a twig it will react a certain way or you see some plants like uh, actually catch insects and then they have reflexes and so on. Yeah, so th- that's a living creature. At the second level, though, is the animal power common to humans and animals. In addition to the capacity of sensation and perception, it comprises the incense, in, incent, incentive impulses and appetitive powers, which is the emotions, feelings. And desires. And so, incentive literally means just impulses, which is primarily for like the animal kingdom. They're all governed by impulses, but you'll see that there are also like emotions and feelings and desires within those higher functioning animals. You know, you look at your pet dog or cat, and you know, it has feelings. Sometimes, you'll notice they have more feelings than human beings. <laughs> but 
they have feelings and so that's what kind of differentiates them as one soul to the, the vegetative souls. Uh, now, what's the difference between a human being and an animal if both have a soul? And the distinction is that the human being has a spirit, whereas the animal does not. Right? And so this is where we, we get into the, that divine DNA or that divine imprint that is given to man. So the word spirit uh, or nous, you find that word um, commonly, um, and, and in Latin, spiritus, it's the rational power which is specific to humans and which constitutes the principal characteristic of our nature. So this is like the principal characteristic of who we are and distinguishing us from all other created beings. All right, so in all simplicity, we can just call this the heart of our heart and, and the place where we communicate with God. It's the place of our most intimate communion with God. All right? So, what are the qualities of, of our soul? Like, what are the qualities of that part of us that links us directly to God and, and allows us to share in, in His nature? So, I'm going to mention a few qualities and you're going to notice that all of these are divine traits. All of these are divine traits. So, first is reflexive consciousness or self-awareness. Okay, we can uh, reflect on our own self and, and, and live with a sense of profound self-awareness that no other creature has. We have abstract thought. We have a linguistic function. Humans alone being endowed with speech precisely because we're endowed with reason. And so this is totally different than any other communication skills that animals have. Memory and imagination in their higher forms, the one enabling us to retain and recall abstract knowledge, and the other to invent and create. So our mind is just so mysterious. And that, that is a product of the divine gift that we, we have in, in our mind, practicing such wonderful memory and imagination and so on. Self-determination, which is the source of our freedom and to which are connected free will, and the faculty of choice as opposed to impulse, because we see that animals can choose, may appear like they have a certain will, but in reality, it's all impulses. And you, you could even say that of the most amazing pets that you've seen, you know, might seem like they're, um, they're always choosing to do something out of like a free will, but in reality, they are driven by um, their, their impulse. And the higher dimension of the will, which enables the choices made to be carried out. Right? And so that's like the, the power of the will. And, and we can practice self-control with that will. And so, some of us better than others, but <laughs> we are endowed with 
self-control. Jean-Claude Larchette says, the interweaving of soul and body implies that in every human activity, they act simultaneously and experience the same affections, the same emotions, the same passions. Right, so the soul and our body are interweaved together and so they share the same functions and they, they experience the same affections, the same emotions, the same passions. So every act, movement or state of the human being is an act, movement or state of soul and body simultaneously. For the body is a servant, the vehicle or instrument of the soul. And he continues to quote St. John Cation where he says, One can even say that the soul's general state leaves its mark on the body, particularly the face. Okay, and so, although we just described these three different components of what a human being is, we always got to walk away with that sort of knowledge thinking that those three are one. Okay, and they are interconnected in a mysterious way. And you'll, you'll notice that he even says that the state of your soul is expressed in a physical sense. And you'll see like somebody's upset, for example, and like their face can show it. And if like a, a married couple are, you know, close enough, um, may not be the case in the beginning of their marriage, but as they, they grow together, like one spouse will be able to tell that, you know, his wife is upset just from simply looking at it. And, and you know, you might say, it's, no, 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 I'm not upset, I'm, I'm fine. And you know, say, well, your, your face betrays you. You definitely don't look like you're not upset. And we have a very hard time hiding the state of our soul because it's always expressed in our bodies. And, um, you know, that's, that's a good thing, you know, when we're happy, we smile and, you know, it's, it's hard to, to smile whenever you're sad, you know, because, again, both are connected. All right, so that's a good place to pause. We're going to take a little break right now, and then we'll come back and uh, cover the second part of um, our talk together. All right, so we're back, and we're going to pick up where we left off. Hopefully, you're uh, not too lost, <laughs> and uh, I hope it's just starting to come together, and we'll continue as uh, the, the session goes, and uh, if it doesn't make any sense, then we'll take time to clarify anything at the end. All right, so as Adam and Eve were living in this pure, wonderful, blissful state in the paradise of joy, you know that God placed two trees, right? There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Okay, so we know that both trees were good. How? Simply because God created them. So if God created them, that means they were good. No question about it. The tree of life, we know, was a, a source of life for 
Adam and Eve. And, and it was what would provide them with immortality. And, and that's why we know that once they were exiled from the paradise of joy, God places the cherub <clears throat> with the flaming sword. And he says that uh, you're, you're prohibited from returning. He says, lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. Right? And so the tree of life would have been that which gave them eternal life. And so the fathers tell us this, is, this was Christ Himself. And so the, the presence of God was truly with them in the paradise of joy. And remember, they say that we heard your footsteps in the garden. After, after they fell, we know that Christ was walking with them. How so? Again, that's a mysterious part of the whole matter. And, you know, that's what, what I mentioned earlier should leave us with more wonder than actually grasping the whole matter. Now, the other tree, which is going to be um, more of the, you know, the, the, the topic and what, what happens and uh, what falls apart, is the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Again, we said that this tree was not evil because God created it, right? St. Gregory Nazianzen says, The tree was not evil from the beginning when planted, nor was it forbidden because God resented us. Okay, so it's not like God put it there to, like, to taunt us, like, yeah, like, ha ha ha, you can't eat this tree. All right, so he says, But it would have been good if partaken of at the proper time, for the tree was, according to my view, contemplation, upon which it is only safe for those who have reached maturity of habit to enter, but which is not good for those who are still somewhat simple and greedy. And St. John Damascus and earlier church fathers like St. Ephraim and all the other fathers tell us the very same thing. And so we would have been entitled to eat from this tree when the time was right. He didn't just put it there to taunt us. He wanted to give us knowledge of good and evil. And this was something that that God intended for us to have, but we were just not ready at that state. Think of a, a loving father that just purchases a car for his 14-year-old his son and says, I, I got you this car and I want you to have it. I can't wait for you to have it. I'm going to put it in the garage for you so that you could have something to anticipate. And it's going to be there for you to use whenever you... Get your driver's license in a couple of years. But now, you can't drive it. Don't touch it. Remember, the command was not even, you shall not eat it, but you shall not touch it. And Eve told this to the serpent. You know, God didn't even want us to compromise. He didn't want us to cut corners. From the very beginning, the command was not just, don't eat the tree, but don't flirt with evil. Don't come near evil. Don't think about disobedience. Don't touch the idea of disobeying me. And so, the father tells his son, 
don't drive this car, not because there's a problem with the car, just because the son won't be ready. He'll kill himself if he gets into a car and drives it away when he doesn't have the maturity yet. So, St. Theophilus of Antioch says, the tree of knowledge itself was good, and its fruit was good. But it was not the tree, as some think, but the disobedience, which had death in it. So a lot of times we say, I, they ate from the tree, the tree brought them death. The tree didn't bring sin and death and corruption. It was the very act of disobedience that corrupted our nature. And so when we were exiled from the paradise of joy, we, we felt in our nature, in our condition. Our nature was corrupted. Not that we were literally displaced from a physical place, although, yes, the paradise of joy was a physical place, but we can't think of the fall as just getting kicked out of a room or something like that. But the fall was more of our condition breaking or our nature falling into a corrupted state. All right? St. Athanasius elaborates on this topic and he's definitely the best figure to go to whenever you want to dig into this whole concept. He says a profound quote from the book on the Incarnation. Instead of remaining in the state in which God had created them, they were in process of becoming corrupted entirely and death had them completely under its dominion. For the transgression of the commandment was making them turn back again according to their nature. And as they had come at the beginning into being out of non-existence, so were they now on the way to returning through corruption to non-existence again. Wow. <laughs> he continues to say, The presence and love of the Word had called them into being. Inevitably, therefore, when they lost the knowledge of God, they lost existence with it. So, you can link existence with knowledge of God. For St. Athanasius, they were one and the same. And, and we got to understand that that's the case. Existence is entirely a product of knowledge of God. So we cannot know Him. We are not connected to Him. What sort of existence is that? So he says, they were on their way to returning through corruption to non-existence. Again, they were just fading away into non-existence. Which is a very profound concept to think. Now, we, we can't say that they would have literally just vanished. And that's not what St. Athanasius is saying either. We, we got to look at this as humanity was just drifting away from the very purpose of their creation. So now let's take a moment to talk about that corruption and the sin that entered into the world. For starters, let's just define 
what sin is. We know that from the Greek, it's amartiyas, which literally means missing the mark. Right? So God is the mark, and everything else that misses God is sin. Now, of course, that doesn't mean if you're not at church, you are sinning, right? So we, we don't look at this as a, like a legalistic understanding of sin. Because anything we do can have God in it, right? Whether you're, you're cooking or playing a sport or whatever, if God is in it, then you're not missing the mark. Whatever we're doing away from God is missing the mark. So we don't just look at it in a legalistic sense of like, is this right? Is this wrong? And so on. And that's what differentiates orthodoxy from other denominations where there's a more legalistic understanding of what sin is. And we'll get into that in comparative theology later. So for for humanity, we look at this corruption as infiltrating or, or penetrating into the whole human nature. And so we say that we inherit Adam's sin, but we got to understand what that really means. Because we're not like guilty of that specific action. That's why we don't say a child is born a sinner. And if a child is born and he passes away before he's baptized, we don't say, okay, he was a sinner and he's going to hell. That's absolute nonsense. We are born inheriting a condition. Think of someone born with an illness. Right? If, if a, a mother had a certain disease and it's passed down to the child the child will inherit that disease. Right? But in that case, the child is pretty much stuck and that will determine his, his future condition. He is going to be sick or uh, going to be limited with whatever dysfunction that he has because he inherited that. On the other hand, if you think of someone that's just born in a poor household, like born in poverty, of course, he inherits that condition, right? He's going to grow with those limitations. But that doesn't determine his future the same way as a disease would. You know, if, if a disease is incurable, you just live with that. And that basically serves as your destiny. But in poverty, as you grow, you can have choices to, 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 to work and to get out of that condition. For us, we can grow and 
in our unity with God through baptism and the sacraments and so on, we renew our life to, to live in a godly way because we're not just doomed because of this sin. And I was like this sort of pessimism that infiltrated into the West and that, that, that sort of Christianity, which is not what the scriptures of the fathers teach us. And so we're not born guilty of a sin, although we just inherit the consequences of this fallen nature. And again, we'll get into what Christ has done to renew that, and how God is continuing to work in our life to refine us every day. So now that we get into the the, the idea that our nature was corrupted, there's still a little bit more to say about what that really means. And the first thing that we got to say is that our will was crippled. And we got to look at the the inclination that we first had, which was directed towards God, was now corrupted. So now we started to be inclined to other things, which is pleasures in the world and sins and so on. And this corrupted nature caused division between us as a human race. You know, you, you see that like Adam and Eve are starting to like blame each other as soon as they they fall and there's like a brokenness in their unity. There's dissociation and fragmentation even between our own being because now within our own selves we notice that there's this sense of disorderliness or or fragmentation in our minds and our feelings and our thoughts and a lot of times we're all over the place but we were not created to be in that condition. We were created to be whole. And ultimately what that does was divide us from God. And that sin was like a barrier, a wall. And that's why in, in God sending His Son to save us, He broke that wall, right? He, he tore down this barrier of sin. So when Adam and Eve fell, we always look at it as a matter of deception than a matter of rebellion. We know that Adam and Eve were deceived. They were young and the devil comes in in this disguise as a serpent. And he says, you know, did God really say this? And then it's a casual conversation. And that doesn't excuse what happened, of course. But we always look at this with some sympathy. And this is exactly what God did. After they fell, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed and all this stuff happens. God grabs the three parties that were involved in this event and he first goes to the devil and he talks to him about the consequences that are coming to him. And the very first thing that's on God's mind is how He will save us 
and redeem us by prophesying about his incarnation. And he says that from the seed of a woman, you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. Right? The very first thing on God's mind is, I love you too much to see you in this corrupted state. Again, like we mentioned in the beginning, how God creates everything that He does is out of love. And He foresaw this by creating us. He knew that we would fall. It's not like God created us, put us in the paradise of Eden, and then all of a sudden we eat from the tree and then, oh, <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Ah, oh, shoot, like what am I going to do now? <laughs> right? So God knew and this was actually in His providence what would reveal the depths of His love for us as He would come and assume our nature and die for us on the cross and renew us through His resurrection. So now, we can see that this was the first priority on God's mind. St. Irenaeus says, Christ completely renewed all things, both taking up the battle against our enemy and crushing him, who at the beginning had led us captive in Adam, trampling on his head, as you find in Genesis that God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and the seed of the woman. From then on it was proclaimed that he who was to be born of a virgin after the likeness of Adam would crush the serpent's head. This was the very first thing on God's mind. And he knew that there was no other way. There was no other way except through his incarnation, his crucifixion, the resurrection, and giving us his spirit on Pentecost. There was no other way we could have been saved. And a lot of people come and say, well, why didn't we just have a chance to repent? We could have just confessed, said sorry, God will just forgot all about it, and then we start all over. But if we dig a little bit deeper into what really happened, we see that there was no other way except through what God would do for us through His Christ. St. Athanasius talks about what's called the divine dilemma. And I'll just quote to you something that he says and we'll dig a little bit deeper into what that really means. He says, It would of course have been unthinkable that God should go back upon His word and that man, having transgressed, should not die. Right? So from this thought, he says, It's unthinkable that God would go back on His word because He said, once you eat from this tree, you shall surely die. And so it would be absurd for God to be a liar, right? He continues to say, It was equally monstrous that beings which once had shared the nature of the word should perish and turn back again into non-existence through corruption. So, on the other hand, it would be monstrous for them to actually die. So if He holds on to His word and they die then what would that say about God who gave humanity His own image? And so that image that is inscribed in man, the divine image, 
would deteriorate, would waste away in a process of corruption. And he continues to say, having indifference to the ruin of his own work, before his very eyes would argue, not goodness in God, but limitation. And that far more than if he had never created men at all. So if he just sits back and he does neither, then that sort of indifference would suggest a limitation on God's part, rather than his goodness. And he, he continues to say that it would have been better had they never been created if that was to happen. So here we have this divine dilemma. And we know that it cannot be solved except by Christ taking our flesh and assuming the consequences of our disobedience, which was that death. And so the consequences are fulfilled if he is to die by assuming us and carrying humanity in himself, then that penalty is fulfilled. But knowing that he is God, death can't hold him. And so by his resurrection, he raises us up with him into new life. Right? That's the simplified version of the whole process. But what, what I want to say before we get into what God has done for us through His Christ, is that when we study soteriology, it's not just limited to what Christ did for us in His crucifixion. That, of course, is like at the climax. But soteriology is a matter of the entire divine economy of salvation. Although salvation comes through synergy and like our cooperation with God, what He has done for us is really the essence of the whole thing. All right? and, and what He has done for us cannot just be limited to the crucifixion. It's everything from the incarnation to the crucifixion, the resurrection, to His ascension, to... Pentecost, and His dealing with us on a daily basis today. But we kind of look at all of that as one whole. right? And that is the essence of it. Our part in receiving it, accepting it, and cooperating with it is significant. right? But it's really a small percent of the whole process. The, the real work... The impossible part, which man could never have done, was to fulfill the, the consequences that were due to us. And in that, we see that it was accomplished through like this great exchange. St. Athanasius, among so many of the other fathers, says that God became man, that man may become God. So He takes our corruption, our death, He fulfills the penalty that was due to us, but in return He gives us life, immortality, and renews our nature. He corrects that deviated will that strayed away from God. So St. Cyril, again among many of the other fathers, 
says, He took what is ours and gave us what is His. And in doing so, He elevates us to return to the potential, and an even higher potential than what we ever had. Because it was never done before that the, the indwelling of the Logos would come to the human nature. And so we are elevated beyond anything that Adam and Eve ever had before. So this is a greater potential through what Christ has done for us. And when, when we think of the words God became man, that man may become God, we don't say that literally that God is going to make us gods by nature, but we receive the grace to to live according to the image and the likeness we, we were created to have. And, and we said that is to reflect everything that God is, and so we are to be everything that He is by His grace. Okay, we are like to walk around like little Christs. Right? So to be Christ unto the world. So the first thing that we can say in this whole process as we now like focus our attention on, on what Christ has done for us, we have to start by the concept of recapitulation. And recapitulation is basically like Christ through His incarnation assuming all of humanity. And so, as He assumes all humanity, He takes within Himself our corruption, He takes within Himself all our limitations, He identifies with us, and He becomes like consubstantial with humanity. And we say in Christology, we'll get into this a little bit later in our next session, but there is like a double consubstantiality in Christ, that He is consubstantial, Substantial with the Father and consubstantial with humanity. He's of the same essence, of the same substance. And both are united as one in Christ. In 1 Corinthians, we see that St. Paul says, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And Later on in the 15th chapter, he says, Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving being, a life-giving spirit. And, and we know from the words of St. Gregory the theologian, what's not assumed is not saved. Right? So Christ had to assume all that belongs to us, all our sin, our corruption, and to voluntarily surrender to death, the death that was due to us. And if he didn't assume it, he didn't save it. If he didn't ascribe it to himself, then he did not save it. And so we say that he became all that we are, except for sin alone. And this was uh, a, a concept that was developed First by uh, St. Irenaeus from the 2nd century. He says, The only true and steadfast teacher, the Logos of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who did, through his transcendent love, become what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. So in doing so, he assumes us and he gives us all that belongs to himself. St. Cyril, later on, echoes the same words and says, The incarnate word died for our sakes according to the flesh in order that he would confer death for us and would raise the whole nature with himself for we were all in him in so far as he has become man. Alright. So we were all in Christ and in assuming all of humanity, he renewed all humanity. And so this is an integral part of soteriology, that he doesn't just satisfy the consequences that were due to us, but that he renews our nature. He, in a sense, reorients the broken will or the deviated will that had fallen. Think of a car that is designed to drive straight, but after it gets into an accident, the alignment is totally distorted. And so the driver may drive the car and he could just like compensate and like like keep the wheel <laughs> turned to the right the whole time if the car is always pulling to the left. But that doesn't fix the car. Even if he's just compensating, compensating doesn't fix the car. So humanity was living, trying to compensate, living by the law. But in Christ, we see that he assumes that will and then realigns it. Like he fixes the alignment of the broken car. Like a mechanic would come and take that car and fix that deviation. So St. Cyril elaborates on this. He says, for all will rise from the dead, because it has been given to the whole nature as a result of the grace of the resurrection and in the one Christ, who from the beginning as the first one destroyed the dominion of death and was brought to unending life. The common definition of humanity is transformed just as in Adam, as again in one who is first, it is condemned to death and corruption. Right, so you see here is that God transformed our nature or renewed our nature through what Christ has done for us. And we see this throughout His whole life here on earth, in every interaction that He has with His disciples, the Pharisees, the scribes. He is reorienting the will of man from hatred and, and envy and laziness and he redirects it to purity and love and prayer and perfection. St. Athanasius says creation was there all the time, but it did not prevent men from wallowing in error. Once more then, it was the word of God who sees all that is in man and moves all things in creation, who alone would meet the needs of the situation. It was his part and his alone whose ordering of the universe reveals the Father to renew the same teaching. And so it was in Christ 
that all was renewed. I'll mention to you what is without a doubt my favorite quote from anything St. Cyril has said and probably from anything all the fathers have said. Alright, so be extra attentive for this one. Because this one is just special to me. <laughs> so St. Cyril says, For unless he had been afraid, human nature could not have become free from cowardice. Unless he had experienced grief, there would never have been any deliverance from grief. Unless he had been troubled and alarmed, no escape from these feelings could have been found. And with regard to every human experience, you will find exactly the corresponding thing in Christ. The passions of his flesh were aroused, not that they might have the upper hand as they do in us, but in order that when aroused, they might be thoroughly subdued by the power of the word dwelling in the flesh. The nature thus undergoing a change for the better. Wow. So you see that in Christ, he experiences all the consequences of our sins. Fear and cowardice and grief and troubles, anxieties, everything, right? He says, in regard to every human experience, you will find exactly the same or corresponding thing in Christ. So with every experience that you see in humanity, you will also see in Christ. But instead of gripping him and leading him into sin, he reorients our nature to God throughout all of these experiences so that in a sense he's always rewiring us. While he's experiencing fear, he rewires our nature so that that fear doesn't cause sin, despondency, or hopelessness. And the the same can be said with every other experience. So that's what Christ did for our nature. That he realigned it back to the Father. And He did so by experiencing everything that was constantly misleading us from God to sin. And He did so by realigning it from sin to God. That's why we say he assumed all that is ours except for sin alone. So despite all of these experiences, he did not sin. Now, we also say that he fulfilled the economy in the flesh. And we pray this in the Gregorian liturgy. And what that really means is that there were a lot of steps that any human being was required to take in order to progress through that path of perfection. And what Christ did was to surrender himself completely to that progression. He didn't just come and say, oh, I'm God, I'm going to cut corners. I'm not going to fast or pray or this and that, right? We see him fasting and praying Not just to teach us, although we do learn from that, but because He fulfilled the economy in the flesh. He fulfilled 
the proper sort of protocol, if you can call it, that any perfect human being would need to take in order to elevate our nature. So St. Cyril says, He who was rich shared our poverty, that he might raise man's nature to his riches. He tasted death upon the tree and the cross, that he might take away from the midst of the offenses incurred by reason of the tree, and abolish the guilt that was thereby, and strip death of his tyranny over us. So that's what it means to say that he fulfilled the economy in the flesh. And obviously, it's ultimately fulfilled in his death and resurrection. Alright, so another component that we can stress in what God has done for us through his Christ is that Christ came also to destroy the influence that Satan had over us. And so this part's a little tricky because this is almost like a side job, if you can put it that way. You know, the essence was to renew our nature for this great exchange that we talked about. But we can't deny that he did come to destroy Satan, right? And we have, um, we have this directly from the scriptures where he says in Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And so that's why we can call him a Christ the victor, the one who conquers, the one who has defeated death and Satan. Justin Martyr says, God has finally destroyed principalities and powers by Him who became passable according to His will. The crucifixion has shattered the might of the serpent who instigated Adam's transgression. So that's what it means when we say that He has crushed Satan under our feet. And again, that wasn't the priority for His incarnation, but we see that he does crush Satan under our feet. And in doing so, he liberates us from the influence that Satan had on, on humanity. So we can also continue to elaborate on what else has come to benefit us through the incarnation. In addition to the, that priority that we first spoke about, which was renewing our nature. But Christ told us that he, he came not to be served, but to serve. Right? So in His incarnation, we also find that He teaches us. He teaches us how to serve. He teaches us how to pray. He teaches us so much. And so we can call Him the teacher or, or the perfect exemplar because in His incarnation, we come to know how to live. We come to know what a Christian life should really look like. St. Clement of Alexandria says, Our instructor is the Holy God, Jesus, the Logos, who is the guide of all humanity. And Origen says, The Logos is our teacher, lawgiver, and model. By associating with Him, we lose our deadness and irrationality, becoming divinely possessed and rational. He's the pattern of the perfect life, 
the exemplar of true virtue into whose likeness Christians are transformed, they being enabled to participate in the divine nature. Alright, so now we'll get into a little bit more complicated part of soteriology. And you see on your worksheets are some big words, propitiation, expiation, satisfaction or justification. And you might see these words used loosely throughout uh, different theological studies. And I want to just take a moment to explain what they mean in the most simple way without really complicating the matter. Alright? I'll just mention a verse from St. Paul in Romans 25, 26. So he says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Alright, so you see a couple of the words that we mentioned earlier repeated in these two verses. First one he sees that we're being justified freely by His grace. And again, that just points to the fact that it is God's work that justifies us and it is a free gift of grace. Right? And so we are presented to the Father in Christ as having been justified by Him, as, as having been presented as a renewed nature that is not guilty of any sins because in Christ there, there cannot be found a single sin. Right? And so in, in His work, He justifies us because we participate in, in His work. He unites us to Himself. And so we basically reap the benefits of what Christ has done. And we are presented as being justified because the penalty has been paid and He renews our nature in that sense. Now, the second word where He says propitiation literally comes from the word elastirion. Okay, and you'll... Uh, find this uh, mentioned more distinctly in the Old Testament, um, and it's typically um, defined or translated as the mercy seat. Okay, and this is like a, a, a an atonement or something that that covers, especially like they would use it as the covering for the lid of the ark. So in the mercy seat, you have a covering. It's basically something that would cover over, and that's what would imply the propitiation. So that's why St. Paul says, as he concludes verse 26, that in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Because Christ basically covered our sins in that sense. Right? Origen says that as a true priest, he has offered the Father a true sacrifice in which he himself is the victim, thereby 
propitiating the Father. So our, our sins are covered by Christ to God the Father. Like whenever somebody says like, don't worry bro, I got you covered. All right, so you can literally think of it in, you know, a simple way like that. Although it might not literally mean the same thing. So we just want to keep it as simple as possible in that way. And don't think of it as Christ satisfying the wrath of God the Father or that idea which was more prevalent in the West and started to confuse a little bit more people. And we'll get into why that doesn't really make any sense in a little bit. So I want to now take an opportunity to explain a different word and it also tends to confuse some people so I'll try to make it as uh, simple as possible and hopefully we'll learn a lot from it. So we come to find this word ransom appear quite a bit and if you're always paying attention in the liturgy you'll see that the priest says as a ransom on our behalf, he gave himself up unto death, which reigned over us. We also find it throughout the scriptures. In Mark 10.54, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. In 1 Timothy 2.6, he says, Who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. There are other references as well, but I just want you to know that this is in the scriptures, and we got to ask ourselves what a ransom is. And if you know that it's typically like a payment, you know, you go to uh, give something as a ransom in exchange for something. So it's basically some sort of currency to purchase something else. And so we know that Christ was the ransom. So we got to ask, what was this payment to? Or who was this payment to? He himself is the payment. Then who's this payment going to, right? So St. Gregory asks this question. He says, to whom was that blood offered that was shed for us? And why was it shed? We were detained in bondage by the evil one, sold under sin, and receiving pleasure in exchange for wickedness. Now, since a ransom belongs only to him who holds in bondage, I ask, to whom was this offered and for what cause? If to the evil one, what an outrage. If the robber receives ransom, not only from God, but a ransom which consists of God himself and has such an illustrious payment for his tyranny, a payment for whose sake it would have been right for him to have left us alone altogether. So he says, like this would be absurd for, for us to say that God paid the devil because it would give the devil a whole lot more significance that is really due to him because he didn't possess us. Secondly, it would be absurd for God to like have a sort of transaction with the devil. Not only that, but God isn't just giving him a payment. It's not like he's giving the devil some money, but God himself is the payment. Right? So he says, 
That would be outrageous. He continues to say, but if to the father, you know, if this payment then is to the father, I ask first, how? For it was not by the father that we were being oppressed. And next, on what principle did the blood of his only begotten son delight the father, who would not receive even Isaac when he was being offered by his father Abraham, but changed the sacrifice putting a ram in the place of the human being. So he says, it would be absurd for Christ to have been giving a payment to the devil. Okay, then if the payment is not to the devil, then what do we say? It's to the father? He says, of course, that's absurd as well. Because there's nothing that delights the father in the sacrifice of his only begotten son. And that would imply that the father is a cruel God. And, and we know that he didn't even allow for Abraham's son to be sacrificed because of his compassion. So why would he delight in the sacrifice of his son? You know, the father didn't possess us in order for him to like receive a payment from his son. It's so twisted for us to even say that. But this is something that was starting to develop in the West with Anselm of Canterbury and so on. Right? So what's the solution? You know, if this payment isn't to the devil, it's not to the father, then what is it for? We say that he paid our debt or he paid the price to our condition. Right? This is what Leo the Great says. And this is what all the fathers say that that he paid this debt to our sinful condition. St. Basil says, Having become human and taking on himself the sins of the world, he gave himself as a ransom unto death, by which we were held captive, sold under sin. So there is you know, definitely this sort of like anthropomorphic personalization of death. Because you don't technically pay death, but he just paid that to our condition. He took our condition and gave us his life. So this is what he sold himself to. He sold himself to the condition of our corruption. That's what, what, what the price was paid to. So now I want to conclude with the most spiritual message we can take away from what God has done for us in this whole topic of soteriology, which is revelation. What it is that was revealed to humanity by what God had done for us. So we're going to wrap up with this. And I'll just start this final point by mentioning a quote from St. Athanasius. So he says, But now he entered the world in a new way, stooping to our level in his love and self-revealing to us. He saw the reasonable race, the race of men, wasting out of existence and death reigning over all in corruption. All this he saw and pitying our race, moved with compassion for our limitation. He took to himself a body, a human body even as our own. 
nor did he will merely to become embodied or merely to appear. Had that been so, he could have revealed his divine majesty in some other and better way. No, he took our body. And so he says that this was his way of stooping to our level in his love and self-revealing to us. There was no other option but the cross. Because it was in the cross that the extent of God's love was revealed to men. I mean, you got to just wonder what Adam and Eve really knew about God's love. And, and of course, they, they wondered at His providence and they appreciated all the gifts and, and they definitely had some sort of relationship with God and knew about Him. But humanity had no idea about the depths of God's love except in His revelation through His Son and the cross. And this is what St. Isaac the Syrian says as well. Here is the purpose of creation and the incarnation to reveal His boundless love to the world. He continues to say that all of this was not to redeem us from sin or from any other reason, but solely in order that the world might become aware of the love which God has for His creation. Had all this astounding affair taken place solely for the purpose of forgiveness of sin, it would have been sufficient to redeem us by other means. What objection would there have been if he had done what he did by means of an ordinary death? But he did not make his death at all an ordinary one, so that you might realize the nature of this mystery. So for St. Isaac, Soteriology and, and salvation as a whole is entirely a matter of God's love and the revelation of that love to humanity. And that's why, as I mentioned in the beginning, we can't look at creation as one separate event from God's act of saving us. But the whole process is one progression of man's increasing awareness of, of God's love. And that was really at the heart of all of St. Isaac's writings. He continues to say, Why did God the Word clothe Himself in a body, using gentleness and humility in order to bring the world back to His Father? So he's asking, why did he do all that? He continues to ask, why was he stretched out on the cross for the sake of sinners, handing over his sacred body to suffering on behalf of the world? So he answers and says, I myself say that God did all this for no other reason than to make known to the world the love that he has. But the sum of all is that God the Lord surrendered His own Son to death on the cross for the fervent love of creation. Right? So this is the essence of God's work. He says if He can summarize 
everything that God has done, it's summed up in the love that God has revealed to us through His death on the cross for the fervent love of creation. He continues to say, This was not, however, because He could not have redeemed us in any other way, but so that His surpassing love manifested hereby might be a teacher unto us. And so His love becomes our teacher. That's our model. And He says, And by the death of His only begotten Son, He made us near to Himself. Yeah, if He had had anything more precious, He would have given it to us, so that by it our race might be His own. And so that's quite a punchline at the end. He says, if He had had anything more precious, He would have given it to us, so that by it our race might be His own. And so in what God has done for us, we see that we have received the most valuable, most precious gift that God has. And so we receive the life of God Himself, right? And this is why studying theology is so critical for our growth, that we become further aware of God's love, and that becomes the best fuel to drive us to, to pray and to serve and to offer our whole life to God, just as He gave us His life. So I hope I didn't take too long. Uh, I know I... Uh, drilled you guys with a whole lot of information, but hopefully it all comes together and uh, we'll take some time after we pray to uh, discuss some questions and uh, we'll, we'll just close there. And glory be to God forever. Amen.